0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the CrocCast podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. Hey. Okay. And today we're joined by Jerry Cornelis. Jerry, welcome Hi. to the show.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So, uh, Jerry, you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, like uh, how you've gone to reptiles and uh, kind of what you're currently doing?
1: Well, I mean, it all started when I was really young. I just um, always really had an interest in and animals and I grew up traveling. So um, when I was only six weeks old, I moved to Africa. And then I was, as I was growing up, my dad would take me into the garden to catch frogs and geckos and things like that. And then that just progressed. And um, as I grew older, I, I just became more interested into the reptile side of things. Kept a few snakes here and there as I was growing up. And then, but as far as like going to look, for reptiles like herping and stuff I didn't really you know in my free time at home I didn't really have that much opportunity for that but when we would go on holidays we'd always visit visit like national parks or you know just beautiful natural areas and stuff and then when I um, actually moved to Australia I met the right people and at uni we would just um, go herping and that's when it when it clicked for me and I just haven't really stopped since since then
0: yeah so uh you're currently doing a uh, graduate research with tiger snakes correct
1: yeah so um i needed to to do a a master's project and um i was asking around some of my uh friends that have done phds and stuff about you know what what you need to go to and they, they said there was some cool stuff going on in, in Perth. So I reached out to um, my supervisor and I just asked, hey, um, I want to do a master's on on reptiles. I see you guys are doing some venomous snake stuff or or monitor stuff. Is there a project for me in there somewhere? And uh, he basically replied just instantly saying yes. And then, um, There was a few months of discussion about what I was going to do and eventually Damien who is kind of my unofficial supervisor he's a PhD student he just been he's just finishing up now we kind of carved up some of the things he couldn't squeeze into his PhD and um, that's what I did so I looked at a whole bunch of habitat quality stuff because um, within Perth itself there are a few wetlands that are surrounded by urbanization or like on a gradient of urbanization and within the urban wetlands they kind of just live in in an in a invasive vegetation so i was just comparing some of the ecological variables of the vegetation itself and how tiger snakes live with that and and some of the factors like Frog, frog availability for them because that's their preferred source of food in in wetland areas, and then also I managed to uh, put some transmitters in them and radio track them, and while doing that, we also put little temperature data loggers in them as well. So I also looked at their physiology and how effectively they thermoregulate. So I did quite a quite a broad um, thesis um, on
0: them, but worked up pretty good. So, uh, most Americans, we kind of have a filtered view of Australian environment where it's kind of like mostly just empty desert outback setting. So, but you obviously describe something in down in Perth. That's a little bit different. So you want to go into a little bit detail about uh, the type of environment that uh, you find tiger snakes in around there. And well, yeah,
1: so the, the whole idea of the, um, you know the dry, empty space sort of thing. There, there is a large portion of Australia that, that is that, but it's 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 really biodiverse there as well. But along the the coastal regions of, so it's just like a fringe along the edge. There's a lot of um, green areas, especially in the southwest of Western Australia, where where, where I am now. Um, there's a it's quite. Um, well, there used to be a lot of wetlands, but a lot of them have been destroyed from um, urbanization. So I live on the Swan coastal plain, and there's just a few pockets of of remnant wetlands, and some of them are still in pretty good condition. And that's, at least in this area, that's where you find most tiger snakes. They do kind of, you know, disperse through the, through the coastal heath and Maybe up in the hills a little bit, but the the really concentrated populations are are in the wetlands
0: so tiger snakes as a whole are tend to be a wetland uh, species then um, they're actually
1: super widespread ac- across the 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 southern and eastern coast of Australia and you know when on the mainland populations at least they definitely seem to prefer wetland habitats but uh, they're also found on like these pretty desolate islands and um, it's just a completely different environment for them for example here they mainly eat frogs but on this island just off the coast of Perth there's no permanent water there so um, there's no frogs it's just rock and sand and like small shrubs really so they only have a small window over the year to feed on nesting birds and then like the rest of the year they mainly just have to go down the cracks in the rocks and wait it out so they're pretty adaptable Uh, but if they had a choice i would say they would they would prefer a wetland
2: so um you're kind of mentioning how like the center of australia is is you know uh vast dry deserts and then like the 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 coastline is like the tropic area and stuff. And that's where most people live. So that's where a lot of the urbanization is is happening, correct?
1: Yeah. So, so it's, it's not very tropical here. Um, As far as um, like, you'd have to go past the Tropic of Capricorn to actually get into the, the tropical stuff like down Mm -hmm. here. It's still like the other day it was 40 degrees Celsius here. So it still gets really warm in summer, but we still, we get really cold winters. And in the winter here is is when it when it rains. But yeah, along along the southern and eastern coast is is where you know where most of the people live. But in WA, I think like eighty percent of the population lives in the southwest corner. And it's a huge, huge state. Like it's, it's almost half of the country and they only live in this small pocket in the southwest well over east there's like a few major cities dotted along um, the coast and yet so that's where most of the urbanization occurs but because of there's a large industry in mining or or you know just agriculture so it's not just the habitat destruction for for like um people to live there's also just like massive land clearing for um amenities like
2: and um food so so um go ahead Matt. sorry i was just i was just saying um so because this is something i've heard about i don't know a whole ton about so I was, I was curious is they were talking about because over in like um only like the coastline seems to be like um australia um they're having trouble with uh like well how how do you balance like the urbanization there Since there's only seems to be a small portion that people can live because I guess they can't really move out too far into the outback um, as while keeping the biodiversity there as well, and I guess that's something that you're kind of looking into with the tiger snake. Well,
1: um, the you know it's kind of a it's kind of a double-sided coin. Like you you want to. Like if you're expanding one region, then you're not destroying another region sort of thing. So if you're just spreading one area that, you know, that has its own um, costs and and benefits. But as far as like the expansion goes, people in Australia really like to live in a a house with a garden. So for example, it's not like there's not many except for like Sydney and Melbourne. You know it's not like you know new york city where it's just like massive buildings of apartments and people just live in these uh, apartments and stuff like you do have a few of those but people tend to live in houses with with gardens so it's it's not Mm. when they say urban ecology it's kind of a little bit different here because you still have a lot of like if you look at an aerial there's still like a lot of green space and we have a lot of parks and stuff like that but of course, you'll you'll get species that that move into these areas and and exploit the the new environment and the new sources of food that that they have. But you'll ha- you'll have more specialized or short-range little uh, creatures that can't that have specific requirements that can't adapt to um, to the land use change. So.
0: That's, yeah, it's interesting. So uh, the urban centers are more like. Uh uh more suburban overall like in terms of ecology and appearance then
1: yeah I, like when when people say like to me urban ecology i think of like you know tokyo where you just see like just skyscrapers yeah. everywhere and you might see like a gecko on a on a wall you know 30 floors up like that's what, or you know birds that exploit certain niches in that environment but like at least in perth anyway the, like the gardens are big like there's massive golf courses everywhere. I don't know why you need so many golf courses and then just, um, yeah, the wetlands and stuff. So, so there's just a lot of space for animals to still exploit, but of course, like, you know, they get run over all the time from cars and, um, you'll just have animals that, that just can't, can't exploit that environment. But it's, it's, yeah, I just find it quite different to the idea of, uh, a lot of people's version of, of, urban ecology where they're just like, you know, you'll see foxes running through the streets of London and stuff. And it's just like, I think it's slightly different from that.
0: Yeah. um, In our last episode with Luke Harding, he was talking about uh, blue iguana conservation in Grand Cayman Island. And he specifically mentioned uh, trying to encourage people to make their gardens and yards more suitable for green iguana, not green, blue iguanas to actually coexist with people. So it's interesting to think that, uh, even in suburban and urban settings, and you can still have, uh, conservation efforts to protect species.
1: Yeah. Well, tiger snakes, for example, they're quite restricted to, to the wetlands themselves. I would, I would say that they're not exploiting an urban environment because they I mean, if you live right on the edge of one of these wetlands and you have a garden, you might you might get them in there. But they they do not like disperse through through gardens to get to somewhere else. Like we just did. We just published a a genetics population genetics paper and um, the wetlands that are like within the city themselves. They're showing that they that those populations are, are being isolated. Uh, and not getting enough gene well there's a few barriers to their dispersal regardless but um the southern populations have a lot more gene flow and there's not as much urbanization going on there so they're definitely just restricted to these little islands um that that are their wetlands within within the urban matrix so
2: you, you think the urbanization is is reducing gene flow because it creates uh barriers that doesn't allow certain populations to to intermingle yeah
1: so perth is is divided across but is divided by a quite a large river and the population south of the river is, has more heterozygosity which is you know just the river itself is is a major barrier to, to dispersal and then as you go you know 100 kilometers north of that of that river that's pretty much the edge of their distribution So at the edge of a distribution, you'd always already have much less genetic diversity in in a population. But um, just within like Herdsman Lake, which is an island completely surrounded by um, by urbanization. There's just no way of 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 new members of a population to to get in there and 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 provide the gene flow anymore. So well, you know, historically, when uh, along the Swan coastal plain there would have just been a, a whole matrix of wetlands that would have been you know connected or or it wouldn't have been a, a large gap for them to cross but many of them were filled in and and then just like completely built up
2: so is is the river just too wide for them to cross I mean if if they would go upstream there would definitely be
1: places for them to cross but then you're getting into the hills of mm. Perth and, but, yeah, like basically, if you draw a straight line from Herdsman Lake to Bibra Lake, which is you know our two closest study sites divided by that river, that would be a major major obstacle for them for them to cross like they they can swim, I've seen them swimming, but like swimming across a large river <laughs> is still a, a major task for them,
2: right, okay, so um. So, what um, have you guys proposed any like um, things to help increase gene flow with the ones of the, the north part? Correct? Um, I mean, it it's kind of
1: I don't really know how how you would do that um, because it's not like you can just open up a corridor for them to naturally do it themselves. Mm-hmm. And if you're just going to start relocating snakes around the place yeah i don't i don't really know if that would be um the way to to go about it i I mean there's they're all right for now i just don't know how you would uh, provide a way for them to naturally do that
2: well are the populations so? Are the populations large enough to um to be fine without that level of gene flow i mean
1: that's just That's just a hard question to answer. I don't know if, if at one point, if you keep monitoring the the population for a long time and, and then you at one point decide that they're becoming too inbred, this is still far down the line. They're not, they're not that inbred yet, you know, so it's just showing there's just signs that, that they're isolated from each other. So Mm -hmm. if you were going to, um, you know, provide gene flow by relocating, snakes from other populations i mean maybe down the line in the future that that could be an option to to keep the populations viable but i don't know snakes generally don't do really well when you translocate them so you have to do a lot of um i mean the habitat they they love it they love the invasive grass from from what i can tell They, they don't really care about the vegetation they live in and there's heaps of food the problem i guess would be if you translocate the snake from somewhere um it would just try and and go back and it would just probably just get run over so that was another idea that that um a collaborator had was that you might just have snakes at herdsman lake for example all the ones that tried to disperse they all died so you just have the ones left that are very sedentary that don't that don't move around too much anymore um but yeah i don't know if that's true but I thought that was just an interesting idea that all the ones that try to, to leave over the years, they've probably died and now you've selected them to just be quite sedentary.
2: Huh? That's interesting. I don't know if
1: if you could test for that, but it's an interesting idea anyway.
2: Yeah, that is interesting. Um, so the ones that are on that Island, how did, uh, is that, uh, how did they get there? Do you know?
1: Yeah. So that's something we, uh, we kind of discussed in the um, in the genetics paper as well. I'm just a co-author on this, by the way. This was Damien's and, and, and Brenton's main, main uh, spearheaded that paper. But the main idea was that the story goes that, I, I don't remember when, I think in the 30s or something, there was a snake showman who had a whole bunch of sna- uh, tiger snakes and, and whatever, and he would just do like, live shows holding them and and stuff and i think his wife got bitten and died so he brought them to the island and damned them there to die that's that's the story anyway um but when you look at our when you look at the the genetics from along the the, like our study sites which is probably like hundred kilometers across the coastline. And when you look at the, the population on the island, their, their genetic makeup is really similar to the ones that they're closest to on the mainland. So it could be that they dispersed there by themselves at one point when the sea level was was lower. And then, you know, maybe the showman in the 30s just added to that population so it's still a bit up in the air about how the exactly they got there the only way to really know for sure is by sampling there's a population on an, on an uh, another island close by and just seeing if they're most closely related to that island but unfortunately that island called Garden Island is on a, is is a military base so
2: mm.
1: there's a lot of hoops to jump through to to get onto that island just to go catch some snakes um damien's reached out to the to the ranger there uh to see if he ever you know gets a roadkill one just to take a a tissue sample and slowly build it up from there but it would be uh we know someone that got on there for for their phd and and yeah it's a lot of it's a lot of work to just just to go there for a day to go catch some snakes like yeah
0: yeah, going to catch snakes isn't worth getting shot at. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned uh, that they seem to enjoy the invasive grass species down around Perth. Yeah. So I'm guessing there's a lot of invasive uh, foliage down there. So does that have any sort of uh, impact on their ecology?
1: Well, yeah. So that was the main that was the main goal of my um my masters was just to see if if or how the um, the invasive grass impacts their ecology. So uh, it's called kikuyu grass, which is a, a lawn grass, which might even be the grass that you have in in your lawn in the states as well. It's also really good to feed livestock. So that's the main way reason it got introduced was, um, you know, you just plant it and and livestock love to graze on it. But when livestock aren't grazing it or you aren't mowing it. Um, It just grows into this like dense matrix of of stems. It's like a massive pillow, really. That's and it's Mm. really like you can walk on top of it. So the idea is that the snakes, they we usually see them basking on top of it. And when they get scared, they just swim down into the grass. So it's like a really nice it's a really perfect snake home for them because they don't really have to go far to thermoregulate they can just sit on top and then just bury back down if if they get scared and because it grows right along the water's edge they just have their preferred source of food right there frogs use it as well and um and so then i also wanted to look at whether the thermal properties of of the vegetation itself are are different to the native grass so basically frogs use um kakuya grass and uh, native vegetation pretty much just as much availability was almost the exact same um the predation rate for juveniles living in that grass or in in native vegetation was also there was a negligible difference there the only real and even the 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 thermal properties of the vegetation are are very similar so so Hmm if the clump of vegetation of native vegetation is similar in size to to the the wad of kakuyu grass it's basically the same thermal properties in there as well what i found through radio tracking them that the main the main difference between the ecologies of of tiger snakes in in native vegetation or invasive grass is that they move less in kakuyu grass and i think that's because they don't have to move horizontally to find appropriate um micro to bask they can just bask on top of where they sleep and then when they get too hot they just bury down instead of moving across the landscape to find a patch of sun to to sit in to bask and then move back to a cooler um clump of vegetation they can just move up and down in the kakuyu grass and um that's that's what i think is is happening with um that besides that they 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 don't care about the the vegetation they live in it's all pretty similar so in terms of you know urbanization and you know as as the environment continues to be altered and people keep introducing invasive vegetation it's it's actually not a bad outcome um for for tiger
2: snakes per se they just they don't mind it too much um, the the wetlands that they live in is it is it brackish water or is it freshwater?
1: Um, it's it's freshwater. Um, they're well the the wetlands that we looked at because just to keep it um, consistent, we only looked at enclosed wetlands. So they do live in like the river I described. If there's enough fringing vegetation, they can live in there, and that that is brackish, but Um, and there are frogs that can tolerate, you know, a certain level of, of brackish water. So as long as the frogs are there, then, then they'll be fine. Um, yeah. So basically as long as there's enough fringing vegetation and frogs live in it, then there's a good chance that there will be tiger snakes at that wetland. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the main idea of, of the, the Perth tiger snakes habitat preferences
2: they seem to be pretty resilient to most uh, like different types of um, environments and stuff. As long as they have like the prey and their ability to, you know, thermoregulate and, and all that, they they seem to be able to tolerate a wide variety of different things. Would you say that's correct?
1: Yeah. So um, yeah, they're, they're pretty resilient. And, and so what, what um, Damien's research is looking at, he's look is basically using them, as a bioindicator of, of wetland health, so he did a he looked at a whole bunch of um, biomarkers, basically of, of, of their health, and um, looked at the pollution of the wetlands. And yeah, and now we're working. I think the paper's in um, has been submitted, um, but basically looking at all of the factors that he's looked at over four years. What actually um, predicts the health of a of a tiger snake in a certain wetland? And um, yeah, basically, it's just it's just. I don't know if I should be saying this because it's not published yet. But
0: um, <laughs> yeah, if you don't feel comfortable with it, feel free to yeah. No, it's all map. good because
1: um, basically, especially the enclosed wetlands like Herdsman Lake, are full of pollutants, and and the tiger snakes bioaccumulate a lot of the heavy metals in in those lakes and basically one of the only ways to predict how the health of of a tiger snake is how polluted um or how much um, of these heavy metals they've bioaccumulated. and so the snakes at herdsman lake which is the most polluted wetland are in a in a far worse body condition than um a lot of the other populations that aren't as polluted.
2: So, um, how would you, uh, is there, so are there certain pollutions that are pollutants that are worse for tiger snakes? Since I guess it's mainly the heavy metals that are affecting them. Are there certain pollutants that are worse than others or? I mean,
1: we haven't, we haven't teased out, you know, if, if a high amount of lead in a tiger snake is worse than a high amount of uranium because there's <laughs> literally, there's like the, uh, the paper on that. I think, I think there's like 16 heavy metals mm. that they're bioaccumulating. So if you wanted to figure out which particular metal is, is bad for them, you'd basically have to keep a whole bunch in captivity and just feed spoon, feed them heavy metals to see which <laughs> one. Uh, yeah. so they're probably all not great for them, you know, it's, and also, maybe a little bit of of molybdenum isn't so bad but then if one, when you have all of them together and they're only slightly above you know an average concentration that's just a cumulative effect but it was pretty interesting to see that uh, herdsman lake has uranium levels above government guidelines it's and crazy. that's just like a major urban park where everyone goes to walk their dogs and and stuff like that so mm.
2: So what what's the what's causing the most of the pollution there? Do you, do you know? Um, well, is there just, a lot of is there a lot of a,
1: there? Well, it used to be they used to run sheep there, so that's why they put the the kakuya grass. It was just meant to be sheep pasture, but I don't know why they removed the sheep in the end. But it's just surrounded by an industrial area, and mm. so all the runoff goes straight into the wetland and also you know a few major roads around it so you never know if there's a spill or anything and then when it rains it all just ends up in the wetland and because it's an enclosed wetland there's no river going out to the ocean it just stays in there so it just continues to accumulate more and more so um and there's no no real way to clean it up either like if you wanted to to get to clean it up, you'd basically just have to destroy the whole wetland and start over. Like, you'd, so yeah. that's not really much use either. So it's it's basically just like learn from it. Don't let it happen somewhere else, kind of kind of thing. So, and that's the other thing with the with the grass as well. It's like it's there now. If you wanted to rehabilitate the whole or restore the whole lake, you'd have to bulldoze or burn all the grass off and then start over. So that's not really, you know, beneficial to the animals that live there. All the animals that, that were there that have been extirpated. So like some of, the, some of the birds that would have lived there that don't live on the Swan Coastal Plain anymore. They're just all restricted to the hills now. That's a, a long way for them to fly just to find this wetland that you've restored so then, it might not even be that useful to restoring biodiversity to, to rehabilitate the wetland. So you're better off just just leaving
0: it, basically.
2: Interesting. Yeah.
0: So, uh, you mentioned that their diet is mostly made of frogs. So, uh, what are some other prey items that they might uh, predate on other than frogs?
1: Yeah. So I think I think they mainly just eat frogs because frogs are really easy. I think, especially because when they just live in the vegetation amongst them, or maybe they'll eat little metamorphs in the water, but um, because they just live in the grass, I think they just cruise around and they find a sleeping frog and they just gobble it up. I don't even think they wait for it to die. I think they just eat it alive. And then, but while they're cruising around, we found we found birds, like baby birds, and um we have we found one baby um bandicoot which is you know crash bandicoot the game yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's like <laughs> a small little furry marsupial and yeah they're pretty vicious actually but we we had a we found a little baby one in a tiger snake stomach and then recently or well recently last field season um we caught a snake that Damien was going to uh, dissect to look at some at, at the parasites inside them, and when they when he was dissecting it, he actually found a baby turtle, and that's the first record of an Australian snake successfully predating on a turtle, which is um, interesting. So we found a few few of you know they're opportunistic, but um, they mainly just eat frogs, I think, because it's just the easiest and most available food source. Of course, when there's I've seen ducks nesting in the kikuyu grass as well. So when those babies hatch and there's a tiger snake nearby, it would definitely make the most of that as well. But I think they just—they're not too fussy. They just pick whatever's right in front of them. And on the islands, they there's they eat skinks as well, but mainly mainly just the the bird chicks when it's nesting season on those islands. So,
2: so the when it I don't know if you know this, but when it ate the turtle, did it? Like was it small enough to where it could swallow it whole with the shell and everything, or did it eat? Yeah, it yeah, it
1: was. It was a tiny. It was a tiny turtle. It's like you know, the shell wouldn't be much bigger than the size of a coin. Oh, know?
2: okay, yeah.
1: Yeah. So like freshly hatched, freshly hatched turtle. We don't. We don't know if it actually caught it in the water or if it. If it, you know, may have found it on land or whatever. But yeah, it was a tiny little turtle. There's there's a few records of of snakes in Australia anyway trying to eat turtles, but they just couldn't get around the shell. So, uh, yeah, that's why it was a pretty interesting observation to, to actually find the one and we, we, we always feel for food in the, in the stomach and if there's something in there, we, we try to palpate it out, but we didn't even feel the, the little turtle in there. Hmm.
2: So, um, I have heard, uh, um, cottonmouth will they'll like bend over tall grass to kind of flag areas that are better hunting areas than others. Do you see tiger snakes doing anything similar to that with like the tall invasive grass that you get?
1: Man, I I followed tiger snakes around for about two months and they do nothing. Like I, I knew, <laughs> I knew they did very little. Like I knew that they, like my, my, Damien warned me before I was going to radio track them. He was like, are you sure you want to radio track them? Because they don't do much. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Radio tracking is so much fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, They do nothing. (laughs) Uh, The most interesting observation I made of the tiger snake was on like one of the last days of tracking. I I finally found one eating a frog. Most of the time, they just sit there basking. And, you know, sometimes you'll see them moving around or like, you know, you come back um you know a few days later and it, and it's moved. but that's this is another reason why i think that that they just live amongst their food and they can just within their shelter site they can just find frogs because they they don't really need to move much to yeah. to hunt like they can just be in their shelter site wake up cruise around a little bit find a frog and then just go and bask and and digest so yeah i was I was a bit um, bored at the end, radio tracking. <laughs> just, I spent more time sitting in the car waiting for the next um, tracking interval than actually walking around sometimes. But I had a few few outliers that just decided to to go walk about. One swam across the entire lake, and he went out of range. And so I had to walk around the whole lake and and across this like narrow channel until I got a signal and then and even then he was just like somewhere on a floating mat of vegetation and I had to borrow a friend's kayak to like go out there and (laughs) and figure out which clump of vegetation he was on and I found the clump of vegetation and I thought oh there's no way that if I climb up there that I'm actually going to catch him so I got out of the kayak into this water that I know is polluted with uranium and all, all <laughs> the sorts of stuff. And I climbed onto this clump of vegetation and I just saw him basking there in a little disc and I just grabbed him and yeah, that was uh, that was one of my proudest moments of my masters, I think to actually retrieve him because, because of the temperature data loggers, I had to catch them all again to download the data. Um, so yeah
2: was a good one to get back <laughs> do so, you go ahead, Nate. go ahead go ahead i was just gonna say do you are do you are i know this isn't like the your particular um expertise but do you know if there's any like research being done with their venom as far as like medical research and stuff
1: uh yeah so the main the main guy in australia that does all the all the venom stuff is um is brian fry at university of queensland and he has a whole team of of people that do a whole bunch of uh venom research i i wouldn't know what the what the latest uh thing with with tiger snakes tiger snakes venom is and and also because because tiger snakes are so wide ranging you know their venom on in perth would be you know a different cocktail than what they use on the on the east coast there would be some similarities but it, it would be still there'd be some differences and and i know that um there was a relatively recent paper from that lab that that described the uh the shift in in the venom cocktail of of, of brown snakes when they're born to when they're adults because all basically all australian snakes when they're born they're like tiny little or at least elapids anyway they're pretty small and, mo- and pretty much all of them feed on lizards when they're born and then, as they grow larger and can eat mammals, that their venom shifts to target that specific prey. So, I'm sure there's also a lot of ver- And tiger snakes as a whole are also super variable. At one point, there are several species, the, and and um, a lot of people say the jury's still out on on whether they're just one really di- like morphologically diverse species. So, I know there's mm-hmm. there'll be some differences in in their venom.
0: So, uh, uh, how I first came across you was uh, your wildlife photography. So, you want to go into that at all? Or... Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. Um, what What do you want to know about?
0: Um... <laughs> uh, you, like, what's been your general experience, like, uh, out there, down there, uh, herping and so just finding stuff to photograph and stuff? I guess.
1: Yeah. Um... Sorry for
0: it being kind of a vague question but no
1: no no that's that's all good um you know i i've watched a few youtube videos of 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 guys herping in the states and i'll see videos of guys that that find like 50 snakes in a day and that's just not that just doesn't happen here i just (laughs) i don't know anyone that's been out herping here for like a night and found like 50 snakes um (laughs) It's pretty, it's pretty hard um, in Australia, unless you, you just get like a massive, I know a friend of mine, he was somewhere in, in central Queensland during a, a massive flooding event. And, and he might've gotten 50 snakes that night. I don't know if he, if he even got that many, but because the whole, because of the, the way the, the sand is, it just becomes a sludge and just seals up the cracks and that's and the, and the because it's so dry and and barren there all the snakes live in the soil cracks so once they fill up the snakes have nowhere else to go but the road
2: mm.
1: and so you know unless you get an event like that where where they have nowhere else to be it's very hard to to find a lot of animals i think one of my best nights where where you know i was like oh my god this is crazy i think that was like 10 different snakes. Um, so it, it's pretty hard to people think, oh, you know, Australia, the land of snakes, they're I'm going to see snakes everywhere. But I reckon most Australians have barely even, you know, they might have glimpsed most Australians probably even just glimpsed a snake or, or probably haven't even seen one. I'll walk around Hurzman Lake and, you know, we've caught 25 tiger snakes in a day there because that's just like super that's like i don't know anywhere else where there's a population of tiger snakes or or lapid's in general that dense and people will walk up to me and like oh there are tiger snakes here and it's like (laughs) and they're just walking their dog off the leash or, or whatever but um yeah i think the the herping the snakes here are very cryptic and they and especially because it gets hot really quick so there's only you know, at least in spring and summer when, when they're out by 10 o'clock in the morning, it's pretty much done for the day. Um, so, and it's like 40 degrees maybe. And people are, oh, there'll be snakes out No, They're, they're all gone. Um, they're all hiding by then, but as far as, as herping trips go, um, yeah, I've been to, I've been to a few places around Australia um, and I think the um, the herping is probably the best in um, in spring and, and autumn. That's probably the best two seasons to, to, to go herping and, and actually find large numbers of individuals because in summer it's just too hot and everything dies off.
2: It's like the uh, Burmese pythons in in Florida. They people think you're gonna you go over there and you're just gonna see them all over the place. But you can go spend twelve hours walking around in the swamps and stuff and never see one. The the best way to find them is just road cruising, driving down a dirt road that isn't traveled very often, and hoping you get lucky that one crosses the road at that time. Other than mm-hmm. other than that, you could walk past five of them and not even know it. Like. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of them out there, but you're just not going to see them.
1: Yeah, that's that's my favorite method of of herping is is road cruising. Yeah, that's how you that's how you get most that's how you target snakes the best. I feel, except you know, if you're really looking for a specific species, if you're just going somewhere just to to get bulk species, most most things that you want to see, then then yeah, definitely road cruising on a on a warm night that's that's the best but there's also a lot of um cool diurnal stuff that you that you won't get like a lot of the dragons they're really amazing um in australia and yeah for they can be quite easy to see but getting a photo of them can be a a different story because a lot of the larger ones anyway they just bolt as soon as they as soon as they see you um but since during my masters and just a bit off and on but now more so that i've sort of finished i've gone back into environmental consulting so i get to do some trapping and stuff so i get to i get to see a lot of the ones that are hard to get
2: um how do you um, with herping, like monitor lizards over there, is that pretty difficult? Are they pretty common, or how does that? that um,
1: like? Yeah. So the big ones are, are relatively—they're relatively easy to to see. they will just be driving down the road, and they'll just be—they'll just be standing in the middle of the road, or or just off the side of the road. But all the smaller ones, um, you know, beside, which are probably my favorite. The the smaller ones I, I really like them. They're really you got some really nice colors on them. And they're just also a bit hard to find. They can be really tricky to to get. Like one of them um is called is called brevicota. It's one of the smallest monitors. I think there's only one species that's smaller than them in uh northern Australia. And they just live in, in sand burrows under spinifex clumps. So unless you're trapping they're they're super hard to get i was doing a a survey and i was digging up a what i thought was a scorpion hole and i found one at the bottom of that but um besides doing that they're you know they're very hard to to get um and a lot of the other ones they're either just living behind bark or in rock cracks so you need to put a you know unless you just hit the right patch you you can put a lot of hours in, and uh, maybe even then only get a glimpse of one scooting up the tree, and yeah, and then even then they're like if you do find one and catch one, they're very
2: hard to photograph. So, oh really? Yeah. Why is that? Do they just scare you off like immediately or?
1: Yeah, they're especially the smaller one, the smaller tree monitors and stuff. They're just really nervous um, little things. So. Yeah, they're they're pretty they're pretty hard to photograph and get a something where they don't look dead or or super scared. So <laughs> uh, the larger ones, like parentes, if you get a, a really large parenti or a or a yellow throated yellow spotted monitor, especially the yellow spotteds, you could just walk right up to them and they'll they'll defend themselves. So you you probably don't even need to catch them or anything. You can just get real close and it'll hiss at you and may even swipe at you with its tail and you can get really cool shots of it like that and my and parentes as well they're especially a big one they'll they'll generally not really consider you that much of a threat the smaller ones will of course but if you get a large male
0: um he'll probably just sit there if you approach him slowly so yeah parentis probably my ultimate bucket list uh, lizard to herp up so that's been there was one
1: just hanging out at like along the path at the at one of the mine camps I was at recently just <laughs> cruising around eating scraps that people leave behind.
2: That's gotta yeah. be so cool. Monitor lizards are my all time favorite lizard, So that's gonna be so cool to just see them like like just hanging out like I don't know like a squirrel over here or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, like um I
1: mean, in Perth it's pretty hard you do you do get them you do get monitors occasionally i've seen i've seen a few little tree monitors but if you go anywhere dry any sandy or, or, or rocky habitat a bit for, further north or east you'll just see them like along the road all the time <laughs> especially sand monitors they'll just be along the road and you you actually see heaps of roadkill cuz they they just stand in the middle of the road and look around and, or just sit there basking and people just don't see them and run them over. But
2: have you, have you set up like a drift fence trap, like in the desert or something like that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the main things I, well, one of my favorite things I do as a consultant is, uh, is the pitfall trapping and, um, yeah, we get, get a few monitors doing that. I haven't done any, uh, trapping in the Sandy stuff. Um, but, in the in the we do quite a bit of yeah. it, and
2: yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so um, I did want to I did want to like switch gears on a another on a different question, as far as topics go. So Nate, did you have any more like questions as far as this topic goes? Um, uh, not no, not in the moment. Cool. Okay, so um, I did want to ask. So we, we've talked to we talked to someone else about this too. Um, But I thought since you're a master's student, it'd be a good question to ask you. What would you um, tell the people that are wanting to go get their master's degree? um, Like, especially in herpetology, like how they should go about doing it and just like your experience and stuff like that.
1: Well, especially if you if you want to do research, like you can do a you can do a coursework master's and. And, you know, you can just apply to any uni that has the courses you want to do and you just do the coursework and you you get a master's. Right. So but if you want to do a research project, I think the main thing is you need to be genuinely interested in what you're doing and, and probably do it in your free time as well. Like I'll go herping in my free time. I'll go photograph snakes. You know, that's one of my main hobbies already. Right. And so then, if you do that, you're already building up. You're already gaining experience in your in your free time, and you know if you if you're an undergrad, it sounds shit, but you have to volunteer. Like that's the only way you're gonna get on paper experience for doing stuff. Like I just, you know, and, and it might just be cleaning equipment for for PhD students. Like as long as you, you know, as long as you get in there and you're you're helping out with other research projects and and you'll get um phd students that will be like oh yeah this this person is genuinely interested and they might then recommend you to other people and then you slowly build up your way to do cooler stuff so i started out volunteering by um just cleaning gecko enclosures for one of my well, he, I didn't know him at the time, but he actually became a good friend of mine. So I just he had like 300 or more geckos in one room. And I would be one of the people that would help him with the husbandry of that, feeding them and cleaning their enclosures and stuff. And, you know, then he invited me to do a bit of field work around the place. And then, you know, he knows this guy knows what he's doing. He recommended me to do some other stuff. And that slowly, you know, led into me going on actual trips to go um, survey for leaf tail geckos and um, catch them and do and like collect like morphometrics on them and stuff. And then that actually led into me eventually working as a research assistant at that university, doing basically the same stuff I was already doing as a volunteer, except I was getting paid now. I was going, you know, getting paid to, to go help my friend um, uh, do his radio tracking of nobtail geckos and then taking care of a PhD student's um, geckos in the lab. And so, you know, just you just have to, it, and it was hard for me to get my, my, my foot in the door. I was like hounding some of my lecturers, like, I want to volunteer because that's the only way you, you get experience and um then eventually i got uh started doing some snake catching stuff so i was already herping in my free time and and doing some you know some of this ra work and then i did snake relocations which you know it's uh at the time i was naive about uh snake relocations but it's it's a good way to um to get your snake handling experience up at least you know legally on paper that you that you're doing it and then i started working in environmental consulting because there are the ra stuff i just wasn't getting enough work uh you know i was just like a few hours here and there taking care of geckos and the occasional little field trip so then i started working doing consulting and um it was mainly clearance work so i was just catching animals that were, you know, their habitat was being destroyed and you just, whatever animals you see, you catch them and you you relocate them to somewhere else or whatever. So there's a lot of animal handling experience with that. And then eventually, you know, after doing many trips in my free time and doing that, I, I reached out to a supervisor and told them my qualifications and that I want to do research on, um, at first, I was actually on geckos with the same uni at um, in Townsville, and I did some snake stuff as well. Like, I was just using invasive geckos and the scent of native snakes to see if the invasive geckos could tell the difference be- between some of the species just based on their scent. And uh, they actually could tell the difference between certain species, so that was cool. Really cool. And yeah. then... Um, and then, you know, I did some more work and then eventually I reached out to a supervisor in Perth and um, yeah, I just got got uh, lucky, I guess, because my other supervisor here said she would have never given me uh, a project where I'm just catching a whole bunch of super venomous snakes without even meeting me because <laughs> uh, I just reached out in an email and it only took about two emails before I was before my Supervisor, like, yeah, we we've got something for you. Um, so, I mean, I got lucky in that regard because I didn't have to come here to, you know. Anyone online can just be like, yeah, I can catch snakes, and then you actually put <laughs> put in that environment, and you know, there could be an incident. But we've we've caught um, like well over five hundred snakes, and we've done it without any incidents. So, um,
2: wow.
1: so yeah, basically. Have a genuine interest. Um, get out there and do it in your free time, and then just keep hounding supervisors until, until one of them knows that you're you're for real and you you really want to take it seriously, because I I know students that, you know maybe maybe they did their undergrad and then they were done, and none of the jobs that they thought they could get were available or, or all the jobs that that were available, they weren't interested in. So they just decided, Oh, you know what? I'm going to do a PhD because I got a scholarship on a PhD. So you get, you get some money, it's not heaps, but you know, it's enough to live. So, and then they just, I don't know, they're, they're just not genuinely interested in their project. And it, and it's reflected in, in the quality of work, that they do. I don't want to call anyone out or anything, but that's just an observation that I've made that like, and people ask me as well because they're like, Oh my God, tiger snakes. Like, that's so awesome. Like, I want to do that as well. And, or even in, in consulting, I'll work with people that are really, you know, they love their job and they love animals and stuff, but in their free time, they're not, they're not like me. They don't go out and, and go do it in their free time as well, which I find, I mean, most of the people that I got along really well in that industry, they all do the same thing. Like whether it's birds or, or frogs or, you know, whatever, if you have a thing that you're interested in, you go out and do it in your free time. I click with those people a lot better than people that just do it. Cause it's just a
2: job. The um, yeah, I, I have, I, I won't like name names or anything, but I worked at, uh, I work at two places. One's more research oriented. The other one's more casual. And the, the one place um the people that just don't have a passion for what they do i mean they they like what they do but they don't like it's like once the job's over that's it and then they're fine and then they don't really they don't really care about it or anything like that whereas the other people are just insanely passionate about what they do and that's what they're constantly doing even on their days off and stuff like that it's um it's a lot more fun to be around the people that are a lot more like passionate about what they do, even if it's not necessarily the exact same thing that you're passionate in and stuff. But it's it's a lot more fun, so that's that's neat. Um, what what would you recommend between someone like deciding like coming out of their undergraduate whether to go get their master's degree or to um, or to and and then PhD or if they should go straight into their PhD or how what would you recommend with that?
1: Well, I think it. I think it really depends on, well, one, how old they are. Because I know that, you know, when I went to uni when I was 19, I was a terrible student. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm lucky that my first supervisor, Lynn Schwarzkopf, who's, like, a, a really good um, herpetologist, she's an amazing supervisor as well. My whole undergrad I had really, like, not fantastic grades. And then I did her her herpetology subject and i got like top marks in that and she said if you didn't get a high distinction in my subject i would not have given you a project so but that's also because i was genuinely interested in in the herpetology right like a lot of the other subjects that i did there was a lot there was a few interesting ones but none that really like was like this is why i came to uni um so it depends how old you are i think because as you get older you take things more seriously and then also what life experience do you have? You don't need to be old to have, you know, to have done things in your life. If you just finish uni, you go straight or you finish high school, go straight into undergrad. And at 21, 22, you're like, I'm going to do a PhD. I mean, just go live your life a little bit first. You know, like there's no there's no rush for you to, to get a PhD. Like you can always come back to uni, right? Like, and especially like, if you've done all that, you're just broke. Like you, you you know, you can't really enjoy life as much either. Like you definitely can, but it's, I would, I would say finish high school, go figure out what you actually enjoy doing in your life. Like it was easy for me because I already from a young age. I already knew what I wanted to do, but I've grown to learn that I'm, I'm the outlier with that. Like heaps of people, they, you know, they don't actually know what they want to do with their life. And I feel like that's the problem nowadays, at least in Australia with the, with the zoology, ecology, conservation, biology, you know, all of that, um, all of those topics in uni, I feel like people, they don't really know what they want to do. They're like, Oh, I think animals are cute. I'm going to study something relating to animals. They get a degree and then they don't, they don't know what job they want. They don't know how to navigate that industry. They're not really that, they find out they're not really that genuinely interested in any of it. So they have this degree that they then don't really know what to do with. So finish high school, figure out what you actually want to do or just get some life experience, you know, go traveling or, you know, do, do something with your life other than go to school. Then go to uni and you know f- figure out what that passion is and and just do that in your free time. Start volunteering in the subjects that you are interested in, and then when you're when you're done with undergrad, if you if you find a project or a supervisor that's willing to take you and you and that supervisor is really good at what they do and you're interested in their research, then take that opportunity. Otherwise, just work a little bit and take more time to to figure out what you're doing it's not there's no rush to 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 do university i feel because it's it's not going anywhere you can always come back if if you figure out what you're really passionate about and and yeah i don't know what it's like in, in the u.s but you can always get a job doing something that you might not directly be interested in as long as you have that passion outside of it and you can you know work on your skills outside of it, then that might be the best option for you if you can't, you know, find exactly that niche that that really works for you.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the uh that was um one thing that a lot of people found annoying but I thought it was kind of good. The university that we went to, and I don't know if all universities are like this, but the one that I went to at least the Gen Bio, the freshman biology class, because you do get those people that um that just that, you know, think biology is just, you know, how many facts they know from a documentary that they watched. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh... and so um and so they, they made that first semester biology class like super hard so that it weeds out most of those people. And I knew a few people that were that I was thinking, I was like, these people have are not gonna they're not like biology minded at all. They like the documentary biology and and but yeah, I, that was one thing that I thought was good is they they made it like really hard and more technical based. So that way it kind of weeded out all those people pretty quickly. So um, yeah, that's
1: one of the things that, um, that, I, I mean, honestly, if that would have happened, I mean, I, it's a bit hypocritical of me because <laughs> as I said, I wasn't a very good student per se mm-hmm. uh, in undergrad, but at least now that I've, you know, I've marked some, assignments and and exams and and things like that and it's like you like a lot of these people just need to fail you know like a a lot of these like they're just you know with undergrads they're just holding their hand and getting them through and i think you know i think a few more just need to fail a subject or or you know just they (laughs) need to learn that they can't just that they actually have to do stuff because if you're you're just getting 40% in a subject and that's the cutoff to to pass, then I mean, maybe that's not the direction that you need to be (laughs) taking. But I mean, saying that again, I was a shit student, but when I found the area that I was passionate about, my supervisor saw that and she also saw that the research, you know, I'm not good at assignments, I'm not good at exams. I don't like studying for them. If you give me a research project that I have to manage, I have to go do the field work for it. I have to do the reading on it and then write about that. That's more of my area. Just regurgitating information that's been taught in a a subject. That wasn't really my, um, my thing. But as soon as I found a research project, I knew that that's what I was, you know, that was how I wanted to learn and it, ref, it reflected in my grades at the
0: end as well. Yeah. Um Matt, you have any other questions?
2: Um no, uh, I think that's a good place to stop um, unless you had any questions.
0: No. Uh want to say anything in closing or Um I don't know. I, um sorry
1: for the if I put pressure on you. Sorry about that. No, no. I mean, <laughs> I just think if if anyone is is, you know, back on the subject of 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 getting into the the research stuff, it's yeah. it's not for everyone, you know. And maybe maybe, you, people just need to get a taste of it and figure out if it if it's not. So, you know, I know now that after doing a two two year masters, I don't want to jump straight into a PhD. That's just a whole another level of chapter of my life that I don't really want to dedicate to anything yet. So, yeah, I think just take take your time with with your career as well. Like, that doesn't need to happen before you're 30.
2: That's good advice. I think a lot of people. Well, I know me personally. Like, I always try and like I have to get everything done as fast as possible so I can, you know. But I think that's good advice. Well, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it.